Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening and let's get to it. Gentlemen, you know, I love what I do, but there are certain times when I finish the interview and I'm like, that was really, really fantastic. So I'm thrilled today to have a shining example of a fantastic conversation that I had with Josh Capel, who is an entrepreneur, a restaurateur, someone who has built the most successful bar in Hollywood, a Michelin star restaurant in downtown LA, a casual dining experience after that. And then when COVID shut him and everyone else down, he transitioned over to running a very successful podcast called the Full Comp Podcast. He is a prolific writer. He is a restaurant accelerator. He is a student of both the industry and of the game of leadership and life. And it gives me so much pleasure to bring this wide-ranging discussion with Josh Capel. Josh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. The pleasure is all mine. Well, I don't know about that, but let's see how this goes. Josh, tell me a little bit. I know that you have been so central to entrepreneurial thinking and the entire restaurant industry, and no one really knows how things are going to go and if they're ever going to go back to normal. But post-COVID, do you see restaurants changing from a from a from a like conceptual view in terms of the people you've been speaking to and yourself? Like, is the dining experience going to change, and what does that look like for people? The dining experience is going to evolve, which I think is a better way to look at it. Um, Everything that you're going to see happen within the restaurant industry over the course of the next 30 days to to 12 months, these are all things that were going to happen eventually, but the pandemic just expedited the process. Um, There are a few things I think you're going to see, especially if things go well. Uh, One is you're going to see prices increase. Um, And the reason being, we weren't making any money to begin with. Uh, that's one of the reasons the failure rate was so high. And so rather, rather than existing within a culture where restaurateurs are competing to see who can sell the cheapest stuff for the longest period of time, uh, we're going to be value-based. And we're, we're going to say we're going to provide you with world-class products at a premium rate. And if you don't want that, McDonald's is around the corner. So customers will still have options, um, but they will get used to paying more to get more. Uh, also. Um, customers can, I stop, with- can I stop you on that? I'm sorry. I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more. So how long, and I, I know this is sort of like both as an insider into the restaurant industry and also just someone that speaks to a lot of entrepreneurs and business people, how much of that has been going on? Are people in general like pushing themselves to sort of just out, out, outbid the other person and just make things cheaper? And how are, how are people going to be able to make that shift more effectively? Let's talk about that. So, so much of this deals with asking the wrong questions as entrepreneurs, right? Because restaurateurs are entrepreneurs too. So we ask ourselves questions like, well, how can I get more people in on a Monday when people typically don't go out to eat, right? You drop your prices, right? How do I compete with Taco Tuesday? You make your stuff cheaper. Um, How do I get people in at four o'clock instead of five o'clock? A longer happy hour, right? Um, So, you know, instead of trying to establish more value or structuring our businesses around when demand actually exists. What we do is 
We try and facilitate demand through discounts. But when you look at the industry averages, the, the, the average full service restaurant, that's out at 6%. So if I offer you more than a 6% discount, I'm literally paying to work for free. And so I think the great fallacy, and I think this is true across many industries, but especially in ours, is that people confuse busy with profitable, right? Huge mistake. Just because you are busy does not necessarily mean that you are making money. A huge top line is a young man's ambition. At least it was mine. Uh, you know, what you want is you want a big bottom line. So if that means that instead of running my restaurant 18 hours a day, seven days a week, I run it six hours a day, five days a week, then I, I think that makes more sense. And so I think you're going to see people asking, instead of saying, how do I get busier on a Monday? They're saying, should I be open on a Monday? Is that what my community really wants from me? That kind of abundance mentality certainly speaks of the fact that you, this is not your first rodeo and you've been doing this for quite a while. Maybe, maybe talk to me about some of the time, when did you have that, that shift for yourself? That seemingly isn't how you started. No, certainly not. Um, trial and error. I, uh, so I, over the course of the last several years, I've owned three concepts in all three tiers of dining. I owned a dive bar in Hollywood, a Michelin rated fine dining restaurant in downtown LA, and a fast casual fried chicken joint called South City Fried Chicken. Um, and, and what I had was not, not an abundant mindset, um, but an impoverished mindset focused on growth, focused on trying to get more. Um, and, and everything changed for me when I realized one big thing in my life. And it's that success is not a feeling. Success is a mindset. It, with every accolade, with every achievement, I realized that it, it was empty and it was hollow and I didn't feel that success that I had been waiting to feel. Uh, I had to adopt a successful mindset, understanding that if I needed to feel successful to be successful, I would never be successful successful. That was a train that was never going to arrive. I, I, I love that. I love that idea that the, so often people are looking to, for that. I want to feel successful. And like you're saying, they're never going to feel that way. What does a successful mindset look like? And also conversely, how does one sort of fill that? I need to feel successful hole in their heart when it, when, when they're realizing that it's not going to actually come through their business. So I, I believe that a successful mindset is comprised of two things. Uh, one is ambition, but paired with and offset by gratitude. There, there's nothing wrong with having goals that extend past where you currently are. I think it's important to set those and make those bold. Um, but the other side of it is you have to appreciate where you are and say, I'm in a very good place. You know, I couldn't live in a world where my bar in Hollywood wasn't the most popular bar in the city. I just, I couldn't conceive of a world where I could be happy if that wasn't the case. And then as soon as I, I hit that metric that I had set for myself, which was a bold goal, I then needed a fine dining restaurant because I wanted to tackle that tier of dining. And then I did that, it did well. And then if I wasn't Michelin rated, when Michelin came back to California, I was going to kill myself, right? Because it's, it's so interesting how we continue as entrepreneurs to move the goalposts. And it's fine to do it, but you have to have a central focus on gratitude. A successful mindset says, no matter what happens within my business, I will be happy, I will be fulfilled, and I will do my best every day to make my own dreams come true. 
it's funny you didn't mention strategy so it's like the that the fundamentals are not even a strategy it's the, it's that it's that gratitude and that ambition let's dig into that right so currently i i am a my, my restaurant is closed uh which uh has become very public as of late uh, i i just i couldn't figure out how to make it work i couldn't figure out how to make it profitable so uh we are in hibernation mode and probably moving locations um, so now I've, I've got a successful podcast called Full Comp that I'm doing, and I'm creating content for multiple platforms, uh, whether it be Tipsy or Inc. Magazine or Yelp uh, or, or supplying it on my own channels. Uh, this was something I had never considered doing before March. Um, and, and, and so I, I would tell everyone, look back on your life uh, and, and understand that there was no world that existed where you could have ever imagined that you would be where you are today. It just, it just doesn't happen for us. You can have an end goal. You can talk about how you want to feel, what you want your day-to-day -to, -day to look like, but you have to let the universe take care of the, the, the individual steps in getting there. There's no way you, you could feasibly plan out what that's going to look like. When I moved out to Los Angeles 20 years ago, the plan was to find a great concept in LA that was very forward thinking and move that concept back to Baton Rouge, which is where I was from. And then I ended up running nightclubs in Hollywood. And then I ended up uh, starting my own bar under clothing line for three years, all of these different dots, right? But you can only connect those dots looking back. It is very difficult to chart those dots looking forward. So you just have to let the universe provide while being gratitude by being full of gratitude, optimism, having a strong work ethic, and really believing in yourself. Where did your sense of confidence come from? My mom. Really? Tell me, <laughs> tell me, now tell me about that. My mom raised me to be a prince. Um, always. She always raised me to be a leader. I can remember, I, you know, and I'm sure this is probably true of many entrepreneurs, many free thinkers. I wasn't particularly popular in elementary school or in high school. Because I was that, that, you know, round peg in a square hole. Uh, I just didn't think like everyone else. And I wasn't really concerned with it. And my mother fed that. And whenever I would say, oh, well, you know, this person was mean to me or, you know, I'm not really fitting in well, she'd say they're just jealous or they just don't understand you. But it's okay. Don't deviate. Continue on this path. Become the person that you are meant to be and understand that in fitting in and being like everyone else, you'll never achieve anything great. So I, I, I was groomed to be the person that I am. She looked at my natural skills and abilities and encouraged those things, those things that don't make you popular, right? Those things, those things that make you leaders because, you know, speaking, you know, to you as a leader, as a leader myself, um, the hard path, the path to leadership, uh, it, it, you're charting a new path. And so th there's no groupthink involved there. Uh, it's the big difference between management and leadership, in my opinion. You know, when, it, when I train my team, I'm training them to be leaders. And, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, I think I'm a great leader. And I'm like, no, you're a great manager. And they say, well, you know, how do you know when you're a great leader? And I say, well, you know, when you have a destination in mind. Because as leaders, we're taking people to a new place that they haven't been before. And, and that's not managing someone's behavior. It's explaining your values and inspiring them to follow suit. It's fascinating because putting those, those two concepts that you just spoke about together, 
perhaps that's sort of, there's a, a, new, a new path. On one hand, as a leader, you have to be envisioning something that doesn't currently exist or be comfortable with something that, that seems, seems right, even if that's not what everyone's doing. On the flip side, like you mentioned with COVID, like no one sees and no one knows sort of what to do. So is it for, 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 the, for the, the person that wants to develop themselves, it means essentially just if I'm hearing what you're saying, they have to double down on themselves and in the confidence that the right opportunity will present itself in front of them as they go forward. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, it's, that's what luck is, right? Luck is being in the right place at the right time. But if you're not in the right place and you're not there time and time again, it's not going to happen. Um, the, again, and, and I know it sounds like super hippie and I'm, I'm really not that guy, but I can't stress enough that if you put yourself in the right situation time and time again, greatness will occur 100%. So we're going to come back to the restaurants and the trends. I haven't forgot about that. But, but as a leader and someone that inspires lots of people, I know you're also married and you have one child. I do. I have a two-year-old daughter. Two-year-old daughter. Great. Um, how, how do you, one of, the, one of the big challenges that I, I see with a lot of people that I, I speak with is the ability to find balance is not the right word, but to be able to, to create excellence in all the different areas of your life. So I'm assuming as a, an entrepreneur and B, as a restaurateur, you are working a lot, or at least in the beginning you were. So how do you build that balance? How do you grow a family? And what are sort of the metrics for success in your home life that is it the same, similar kind of things with your business or, or not necessarily? I, so this isn't something I'm even going to pretend to be an expert in. Uh, I've worked 80 to 100 hour weeks most of my professional life, which doesn't leave a lot of time for your family. There isn't a lot of balance. Um, all I can do is tell you the lessons that I've learned in the last six months. So after working 80 to 100 hours a week, and then again, full shutdown back in March, state mandated shutdown, what I, what I realized was this, uh, first and foremost, uh, that, that it wasn't my family that was missing out on me being around. It was me that was missing out on not being with my family. I, I missed, for the most part, the first two years of my daughter's life. And the way I've been able to achieve balance is by understanding that there really, there really is no balance, right? You just, you make choices, you make sacrifices, uh, you know, like, like a great practical example that I can give you is, you know, I, I work out of a home office now and my daughter wanders freely around the house, right? I've made the decision in my life that whenever my daughter walks into the room, she will always feel welcome. She walks in right now in the middle of this interview. You and your guests will get to interact with my daughter. I won't ask her to leave at any point. I won't usher her out. I would never want her to feel like she is unwelcome in this home or in any room that I'm present in. That is, that is not a, a way to achieve balance. That is sacrificing, right? Sacrificing your time, your listeners' times for the well-being of my daughter. That's, that, that's a trade-off, right? That's not, that's not equal parts. There's, there's no balance there. I can list a thousand other examples of the choices that I've made like that. Some for my career, right? Like I wake up at between five and six o'clock every morning to start working. That way I can have breakfast with my daughter in the morning. Uh, they, they, there are all of these different choices that, that we'll make in order to achieve a, a more fair life. But is it, is it more balanced? I don't know. It sounds like it sounds like un, un, unabashedly having the priorities that you have 
and what works for you, which again, I think in our, in our society, we have needs, but people are very uncomfortable sort of stating their needs and, and making it out there because they're so sort of worried about, well, what, is it, what does it mean? Is, what's, what's this person going to think if I'm having a, a professional interaction and then you know, something very unprofessional you know, happens? So I, I, I think that that's uh, the ability to have, like you're saying, the ability to have clarity on what's important to you and to just to live with it. Right. I, 100%. I, I, I don't think there's a more clear, more succinct way to put it. Okay, so besides prices going up for quality of service, what are the other big changes you're going to see in the restaurant industry? I think the customers are going to have to sing for their supper. I, I, I think that, you know, one, one of the big issues within the industry is, is labor, right? Like you have this, I'll give you like an apples to apples comparison. Customers go to the gas station once a week and every time they go, the price is different right? And the price is different because minimum wage continues to go up. The prices are different because there are variable costs incurred in like getting that gas into the pump and into your car, right? But you go to a restaurant, a 20-year-old restaurant, and the prices have only incrementally changed, even though expenses have gone way up, inflation has taken its toll. Um, One of the ways that we can make sure that we're not price gouging is by engaging the customer to be part of the process. So maybe that means that you're ordering at the table. There's still a captain for the section, just like there's a stewardess on a flight, right? Two stewardesses are are able to handle 200 people, right? So so maybe that's the future of restaurants where you do a little bit more to be serviced or to get what you need when you need it. But overall, it enables a, a more I, I think a more hospitable experience for both the people serving and the people being served. Um, you know, the last big change that I'll see that, that I, I see coming is going to be one of ideology. I, I think that what people have realized through the, the pandemic, through what is projected to be a 60% closure rate in the industry uh, is that it's not as easy as it looks. And I would blame restaurateurs, myself included, for trying so hard to make it look easy and for a a generalized lack of transparency and not letting people know how hard it is. I think when you know how hard independent restaurateurs and those staffs work to serve you every day, I think you're less likely to leave a shitty Yelp review. I think you're less likely to, to leave without saying something, right? Because if you had a poor experience and you're invested in the success of this restaurant, you'll tell people. You won't just write an online review, right? You'll, you'll communicate. You'll be invested in the success of the restaurants. Because I can tell you now, people vote with their money. And either you're invested in independent restaurants or you will spend the balance of your life eating at Applebee's, Chili's, TGI Fridays, McDonald's, and Burger King. That is a choice you make by voting with your money. And what we need as an industry is help. We need support. We need our communities to come together and say, you know, through these independent restaurants, these community tables where where neighborhoods are able to come together and celebrate and mourn and meet each other and share experiences, that if that is what you want, you'll need to spend on it in the short term to get us through this and after to help us thrive. We're all going to have to sing for our supper. It's amazing. So that... I mean, just it's coming up a lot and you live sort of the epicenter of, of, uh, of, a, lo- of a lot of things. But specifically, I was thinking that, um, you know, with all of the, the challenges going on politically right now, sort of on all the sides, the, 
the the narrative has to become that there are people behind the stories that it's not just this person or that person you know just you know as as of as of a couple of days ago there was that the shooting of the, the sheriffs in, in la and, they, and they're talking about like this is a 31 year old mother with a six-year-old kid at home and has been there for a year and she was a librarian and and all of a sudden like all of the the uniforms kind of come down like these are these are people also and so it's it's it sounds like that's sort of the shift that also has happened as opposed to going, where can I get a good pizza or where can I get a good steak? It's more like, who is the person that's behind the whole thing and becoming able as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a restaurateur, to be able to tell your story effectively? Well, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, a, big, a big conversation that I've been having lately is about the role of media in food and the role of media in hospitality. And I think it's a valuable conversation to have. When... when major critics write reviews on restaurants and on food. They're reviewing people. They don't mention the people by name. They don't mention the year that it took to build it out or the three months that they spent training. They only talk about three dishes in, in, in a singular experience. Mm. They don't take it all into account. The sacrifices that were made, the 80 to 100 hour weeks, and maybe it's not their place to do so. But I do think it is very hard to talk about whether you're talking about media, whether you're talking about review sites. I think it is very difficult to talk about food and to talk about restaurants without talking about the people within them, without talking about the sacrifices that are made, the individual restaurateurs, the objectives, the goals. You're saying it's difficult or it's irresponsible not to? Meaning it sounds like that's, again, you think about a, a food review and it's like, how is the food? What you're saying is that that's completely like not even approaching, it's, it's almost irresponsible in a lot of ways because there's, again, there's a person behind the food and the story and what they're trying to communicate. Is that sort of what you're saying? What I'm saying is, is there's probably, well, it's, whether it's irresponsible or not, it's certainly not hospitable. It's certainly not the spirit of the industry. Mm. What I would say is there's a better way to tell stories. And the role of the media should be to, to enlighten people as to the efforts of noble people trying to do noble things during a difficult time. And I'll give you a great example. When you look at publications like Eater and the LA Times and all of these major publications that everybody reads, it's all about you know, the top 10 best patios and the top five burgers and the eight best whatever, right? But do you notice how like when the pandemic hit, they stopped? They all stopped. Now, why did they stop those lists and those fake rankings? Is it because it was in poor taste in light of the pandemic? Well, if it's in poor taste in light of the pandemic, my question would be, is it in poor taste generally? Is it, is it unfair to, to categorize us by these meaningless metrics? And is it more important to tell the stories of not just, you know, the guys in strip malls that spent every penny they had trying to do good work and serve their community? Or, or is it about, you know, elevating these already busy restaurants, myself included? We were on every list there was, and God bless them. As busy as we were, it certainly makes you busier. But, but is, is that the role of media is to prop up already successful brands or does it exist to tell stories? We're trying to tell stories through the four walls of our restaurants and the service and the products that we provide. I believe that media has the same roles. And so instead of trying to categorize us, instead of trying to rank and rate us, it would make a lot more sense to just highlight what we're doing and then let the general public decide whether we're valuable to that community or not. So does it make you more or more excited or less excited in the sense that I think what, what you mentioned is, is something that a lot of people are seeing is that out of the pandemic, you know, the big brands are just going to do better. The people that had a lot of money are making a lot more money. The people that had less money are 
out of business. And so I think what you said is there's a very real risk in a lot of ways of the, again, 60% closure rate that all the mom and pop stores are going to go out of the way and, and Applebee's is going to come in where there was a family restaurant. Are you, um, I guess, enthusiastic? Are you positive thinking about how media is in general? Because now you have you know, on Netflix, you have all these different kinds of shows that highlight the chefs, or you have, you know, the ability of the, the restaurateur to, you know, kind of paint their own picture of what they want the establishment to look like via social media, or are you saying it's like, it's just going to be more and more conglomerate and the individual is going to be sort of squished and cease to exist, so to speak? I think that the, the media gives the general public what they're hungry for. And I think that, it, you know, I'm optimistic that people are amazing. And I think that in explaining the problem on platforms like this, the, the, the consumer base that the media is trying to entertain will, will explain that they want to be educated. They'll begin to consume media differently. And they'll begin to look for the, the stories instead of the list. And what you'll see is if there are fewer views on listicles, they'll stop writing them. Right. If, if rather than rating and categorizing us, they're telling human interest stories related to food, related to hospitality, and that's what's getting the views. I, I think that, that that will change the overall dynamic as far as like the world being overrun by Applebee's. People vote with their money. What I can tell you is as an industry professional inspired by industry professionals, you're going to see Michelin rated chefs taking over like 300 square foot kitchens with a window in the back where you can go pick up a world-class meal to go with no seating whatsoever, right? Just a dirty window in a dark alley. Like we're resilient. And so we're going to do the best we can to serve you while fulfilling our own needs and our own dreams. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it's up to the buyers to really determine what that future looks like because we are at best in our most luxurious state, professional servants. That's what we do for a living. We have servants' hearts and we're here to serve the community. So if you want a Michelin-rated chef to serve you through working in Applebee's, he'll do it, right? But if you want the alternative, you have that opportunity as well. I think the idea of being a professional servant is a secret to great leadership, no matter, no matter what the industry you're in. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, and, and could be that just I'm I, I'm not familiar with with how this how this works, but you know a lot of times, and I, I don't know if it's I, I'm, again I'm asking is sort of a, I, I don't I don't know the answer to this, but as a chef is preparing food or or crafting a menu or you know coming up with the concept, how much of it is them and how much of it is the product itself? Because it's interesting. I'm thinking now, you know, okay, chefs and restaurant restaurant are going to have to start telling their own story now. Is that something that's intimidating or are they pretty used to it because they've always been communicating? It's just the medium is now going to be media and print versus just the food and the ambiance of the restaurant. That's a great question. So to give you a little background on what it's like to open a restaurant, uh, you know, during the, the physical build out, you're working on menu concepts, right? And then when the build out is done, you have a brand new kitchen to work in. You then begin to work out those concepts into, into like a real functioning menu based off workflow, capacity, all of that stuff. Once that's done, you, you then have the opportunity to open the restaurant to the public, which is when the real work starts. So you went from working 60 hours a week building this thing out, like making sure that, that it's firing on all cylinders to opening 
it's an absolute shit show. And now you're working 80 to 100 hours a week and you're barely able to keep the ship afloat because no different than children, you have the best of intentions in starting a restaurant, but ultimately your consumer base will tell you what that restaurant is, right? Through what they choose to purchase, through the hours that they choose to patronize the restaurant uh, and through like genuine, honest feedback. Through that whole process, let's say it takes six months, right? Nine months to build it, six months to open it and feel like you're on firm footing. Nobody's telling their story. Everybody's just trying to keep the ship afloat. That is one of the things that must change in order for us to evolve. We do a great job of telling our story within the four walls of our restaurant, but we need to prioritize telling that story to the masses through the mediums that they're consuming. The biggest of which is Instagram, right? Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, I, I think in the future, you're going to have a more conscious consumer base that wants to know not just what you're doing, but why you're doing it. So is that, is that a whole, I'm just thinking, you know, in terms of uh, the, the, my experience in learning about social media in a lot of ways is that I know enough to know that the people that are really good at it are good at it. And that's like their, that's their art. So as, as a chef that's making, or as a restaurateur that is making this transition or is in the process and seeing others make the transition, is it, is it going to be like an intimidating whole nother skill set, Or is it just like, if I'm going to be genuine, I'm going to build a following. And if my story is compelling. Both. Of course, it's going to be like an incredibly intimidating undertaking to, become an expert in documenting your life for people. Right. Uh, and like anything else, whether it be podcasting or, or GMing a restaurant, you find your voice over time. So it's going to be an awkward, uncomfortable process that occurs publicly, you know? Um, and that's very overwhelming. That's very uninspiring when you wanna be perceived in a specific way, right? And you want the work to speak for itself, but it doesn't. That's, that's not the nature of work. You are as obligated to produce world-class work as you are to share that work with the world. And just because you're doing something, right? Doesn't mean people know about it. and doesn't mean that people are gonna necessarily care unless you make them care. So it's, you know, rather than Talking about social media as a promotional tool, I see it as an opportunity to document your life, day to day, week to week. Um, it, it affords you the ability to be human, to be transparent, and, and, and to inspire your customer base or your potential customer base to root for you. And, and giving them that opportunity, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great idea that so many, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I see with just like three people come to mind um, who are entrepreneurs and phenomenally successful that I, that I know, and they're so private. And I'm like, the world needs to know about people like you because, you know, the, what a businessman, so to speak, looks like in the, you know, again, whatever, however people think about it, it's like businessman might look like Trump. You know, that's kind of the, the, the assessment that people make, but there are all kinds of other strands of business people. And, and the more that they can get out there, again, it's like, it's an interesting thing because I, again, I'm just thinking you have your head down and you're just producing great work all the time. And what you're saying, and, and I, I completely agree, is it's like, there's so much more to, to, to a professional, just world-class execution. It's also the human flaws and, and struggles that go through um, a, a person as well. And it's unfortunate because you really only have, I'm just thinking like off the top of my head, like, 
you know, a few chefs and a few restaurateurs that are so prolific, you know, Wolfgang Puck, that you finally get on a podcast and you're like, dude, there's a cool story there, you know, and there's thousands of like him in every single city. Absolutely. You know, something, a big idea that I had, like a big thought that was transformational for me that, that I would like to share because I think it speaks directly to this is, you know, I was afraid to get on social media. I was afraid to start a podcast. I was afraid to write blogs and articles because I was trying to be the door, right? I wanted, I wanted to be that, that expert and, and have that knowledge. When I realized that the true value is in being the hinge, right? Providing that segue that, that, that leads people to the knowledge, that, that therein lies the value. And in being the hinge and not the door, uh, it opens you up to a whole new world because, you know, I don't think anyone hears my podcast or listens to me talk or reads my articles and says that that guy is ex exceptionally anything, right? And I'm not. I'm not exceptionally smart or talented or charismatic. What I am is I'm vulnerable, right? And I'm not pres prescriptive. I don't tell people, you should do this with your life and it'll be great. I say, these are the mistakes I've made. This is what I've done to remedy them. And this is the result. And either that'll work for you or it won't. Either that'll inspire you or it won't. And I have dedicated the last six months and I'll dedicate the next 60 years to trying to learn from as many amazing people as possible. You look at guys like Tony Robbins and you say he's so inspiring, but again, he's not the door. He's the hinge, right? He provides the path to enlightenment. He does not provide the enlightenment itself. And I, I think when you look at a 60% a permanent closure rate in this industry, that there are things that are foundationally wrong with it. And that this is now the time. While everybody's closed, while everyone has the opportunity to sit back and reflect, this is the time to have those open, candid, and vulnerable conversations and move forward as an industry in a better direction. Boy, again, it's such a universal, universal idea that people feel have to, people hold themselves back because they're waiting for their Mona Lisa. And the reality is that maybe the Mona Lisa is never going to come or by the time it's come, it's like you're, most, again, if you look at the classic artists, it's like most of them are dead before anyone even finds out about them. And it's such a tragedy because, you know, there, there's probably so much inspiration. I mean, I'm just speaking as someone that does this kind of stuff and I, I know you do as well. There's so much inspiration that you get when someone says, I listened to your podcast. And even if he's not saying you gave him anything, the fact that you had a conversation with someone that gave them anything, you get a certain level of ownership and enjoyment over the fact that you were the conduit through which that information came. And it drops right. the like the skill, there's a guy in LA who, who has, he has a huge podcast, Lewis Howes. And it's like, he started off by saying like, you know, I don't know how to do any of this stuff. Like, you know, like, but I just have the ability to, to bring you people that have the, the, the information. And I mean, looking at his podcast, like it works pretty well. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a selfish endeavor when done right. Yes. As I, I, I talk to the people that I want to learn from and I ask the questions that I'm, I'm curious in learning. And in doing so, instead of letting my audience choose me, I'm choosing my audience. Hey, are you curious about the things that I'm curious about? Do you want to learn the things that I want to learn from? One of the things that sets my show apart, and, and it was like a valuable learning lesson for me, and it's why, why I've chosen to set up the show this way, and it's why I've chosen to, to invite the guests that I have, is I have learned as much about my industry from people outside the industry as I have from people within it. So 
you know, I'll have Chef Andrew Zimmern or John Taffer on the show. And like, we'll wax philosophical about industry issues. But the restaurant business is a business, first and foremost. So I can also talk to guys like Derek Sivers or Seth Godin or David Meltzer mm -hmm. about leadership, about management, about operational excellence, uh, about building a culture-first, data-driven company. And it makes sense, right? Because we're all in the business of business. And so in, in having a very wide lens, I feel like I'm able to capture a more complete story. I, it, it speaks to the tremendous convergence of everything now that we're seeing in science. It's like ever, it's all just kind of coming together. We're all, I think I, what I'm hearing and what I'm feeling is it's, 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 it's a sense of like, we're on the cusp of like seeing that there's like kind of a one unifying theory that goes through everything, which is, which is really interesting. Again, like what would David Meltzer have to say about the restaurant industry on one hand, like nothing on the other hand, like everything, you know, and it's, it's right. such a fascinating, fascinating concept maybe if you could, I know this is going to be one of those exceedingly broad questions. Was there one or possibly two lessons that really stuck out for you in the, in the conversations you've been having over the six months? Things that just like you, you like, like life-changing, life-changing insights. Absolutely. Yes. 100%. Um, I, I interviewed Gina Wickman who wrote a book called Traction, which is uh, this, this entrepreneurial operating system uh, you read the book, it's step-by-step. Step. You can drop that system into basically any business, reformat it, and it'll be a more efficient model of itself. I read the book. I implemented it in my restaurants and in uh, my tech company. Uh, saw amazing results and wanted to have him on the show. And he dropped this gem in the middle of the show that just blew my mind. He said that he thinks about his life in 10-year blocks. And, and that when he sets a goal, he sets a goal for 10 years out and what he wants it to look like. And so we, when you do that, it lowers, it, it lowers the stakes, it lowers the stress. I'll give you a great example. Like I would like to build my audience to a million people. And I came up with this goal in March. So across all platforms, I wanna hit a million people a month. Uh, huge goal but that's a long horizon. Does the pandemic matter? Not really, right? The pandemic is only two tenths potentially of this 10 year goal. So when you look at the obstacles that you face day to day, they're minimized by the fact that you have this really long horizon. And in, in, in deciding what you want your life to look like from 40 to 50, from 50 to 60, from 60 to 70, from 20 to 30, you're able to set bold goals and analyze every opportunity that comes over the course of that 10 year span and say, does this fall in line with that goal, with that trajectory that I've tried to set? It makes it really easy to say yes. It makes it really easy to say no. And it, it takes the temperature of the room way down day to day. I, I love that. And it's so ironic coming from him because you know, he's always having those 90 day goals within the company. And so to hear from him, you know, okay, so let's, but when it comes down to like who you want to be and who you are, just expand the timeline a little bit and make the horizon a little bit further. So you could, you can dream big, but not at the same time, not risk that failure that oftentimes feels so difficult, frankly, and, and like upsetting and like, oh, I, I didn't hit it. So it's like, okay, so just extend out your timeline a bit. Yep. So that was, that was a really big one. And then I, I would say, 
Another one came from a, a guest you had on the show, Natasha Miller, mm -hmm. who has completely rethought the events industry. And she's taken community and, and, and that sense of, of joy and excitement that comes from getting together and she's digitized it. She's made it virtual. And I, I found what she's done so inspiring because you've got to have big ideas to solve big problems. And, and the fact that, that she had the courage and the vulnerability and that childlike imagination to be able to say, I'm going to rethink this entire industry, which, by the way, is her entire business <laughs> from the ground up and do something with the same enthusiasm in light of these overwhelming obstacles. I, it was just so inspiring to hear. Also, what comes out from, from her is that it was her life experience, just kind of like what you were saying with your mom and, and how you were raised. This is not the product of a, you know, a short-term decision or some cool tip you picked up or, you know, some, you went to some, you know, leadership seminar and all of a sudden your whole life is different, but it, it feels talking to her, talking to you, this is like the, the, the genesis of, of, or the, the outgrowth of a lifetime of, of innovation, of dealing with hardships, of getting punched in the mouth quite a few times and, and keeping going. So it's, again, it's that, that idea that, and I think that that's also one of the big challenges of the social media world is that we're always looking at everyone else's wins, but that is downplaying the value of, all of these struggles, which might be that linchpin that ultimately gets us to, or that hinge, whatever, whatever the right word is, that, that becomes the means through which we really do come up with our great idea. Man, I've done almost 50 interviews at this point. I interviewed people at the top of their industries and a ton of people at the top of my industry. And what I can tell you is successful people were successful before they started. Again, it, it, it's a mindset. Yeah. And time and time again, you see that their, their optimism, their ability to look into the abyss and say, it's not that deep. I can make it to the other side. That, 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 that tenacity, that resilience, you know, I, I tell people all the time when they say, you know, what's the quality you're most proud of in yourself? So I'm a street fighter. I've got like a great ground game. When I, when I think of myself, when I close my eyes, it's not standing on a podium in front of like, thousands of people. When I close my eyes and see who I am as a person, I'm like that guy with the three cups and the ball underneath the cups in the middle of the park with the folding table, just trying to hustle, just trying my best to get just a little further today than I was yesterday. And, and, I, and I think that that resilience matters more than almost any other skill you can adopt. And, and the amazing thing is that's completely present for you right now. It's like you want to get in, in, on a stage in front of a, you know, uh, a thousand people, 10,000 people. Okay, that's going to take you some time. But can you cultivate a little bit more resilience today than you were yesterday? Like do it now. And I think that that's, that's unbelievable. Um, I, 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 this, this flew by. I want to be respectful of your time. La last, last thought before hopefully you'll tell people where they can find you. Um, are you itching to get back to the restaurant industry or are you loving what you're doing and things will materialize at the place and the time when they are going to materialize? I have waded into these uncertain waters and I'm just kind of taking it all in. What I can tell you is, is and this is the only thing I can speak to with any certainty. I, I am of service to anyone that needs anything at any time. That is, you know, I, I had the, the privilege to service my communities 
uh, in Hollywood and in downtown Los Angeles. I now have the great privilege to service my industry. Um, I don't know what's next, but I do know that I will always be of service. Love it. Josh, tell people how they can find you, your podcast, anything else you got going on? Yes, sir. So uh, if you want to learn all about me, you can go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. And the podcast is called Full Comp, F-U-L-L-C-O-M-P. You can look it up anywhere you listen to podcasts. Love it. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate the time. It was my pleasure. Thank you. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.